Uh, this is chapter 2, the book of Titus, verse 1. But as for you, and that refers to Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the Word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself, that's Titus again, in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. This is God's Word, so let's ask Him to bless it. Father in heaven, we thank You for another Sunday, for another time. We sit in this room with our Bibles open. Lord, help us to understand this first, and then give us what we need to obey it once we have Lord, we thank you for this privilege, and we ask again for your help as the master teacher. Make us good students. We ask all this in your precious name. Amen. Uh, as was said before, this is uh, a very practical book, but it's a short book. And this second chapter has to do with uh, the membership within a church. The first chapter had to do with the leadership within the church. The third chapter will have to do with both of those parties together and their witness of the gospel to the world around us. But we started on a theme a few weeks ago, and it's uh, in full force here, believing is behaving. The idea being what you believe will determine how you behave yourself. Uh, the, the things you say, the things you do, the way you spend your time or your money, uh, all of it goes back to what you believe. You might not make conscious decisions every morning of your life. Okay, I'm going to act this way because I believe this stuff. But inevitably, that's the way it, it all shakes out. So if you were paying attention, and I didn't warn you ahead of time to pay attention, that, that's a bad teacher, isn't it? Hey, we're going to have a quiz, and I'm not going to tell you what's on it. But uh, there's been three different times where he's given us a why all this is important. First was verse 5, so that the Word of God may not be reviled. The Bible gets blamed for a lot of Christians behaving badly. We want to behave correctly, and then the Word doesn't catch all the, 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 the objections, right? And then he went on in verse 8 to say, so that an opponent may be put to shame, an opponent of the Scriptures, having nothing evil to say about us. It's hard to have a fight with someone who's operating in a way that's attractive to you. You'd rather be that person, and everything seems to be put together, at least on a moral level. It's, it, it's kind of tough. There's nothing to say. And then, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. The gospel is actually made attractive by God's children living like God's children. If you believe this book, you should behave in a certain way. At least that's the point we're after. So, 
Truth of it is, if the grace of God is to reach the lost world, the world that doesn't believe this book or anything that we would say about it, is going to depend on the behavior of the church. Because in the end, they will not judge us by our theology. They'll judge us by the way we act. Uh, I've never had someone who doesn't believe the Bible engage me theologically because they don't know that. Uh, th those are our insider tools of the trade. They usually say something like, you know, to be a Christian, you sure don't act like one. That sticks. So you might, it kind of breaks down and you want to say, God in heaven, don't you understand that you put the gospel in the hands of the people who needed it to start with in order to share it with others? That's, that's crazy, isn't it? Um, but isn't that the way it works? It's usually not our accomplishments that attract us to people. Though they'll respect your accomplishments, it's your pain where they'll relate to you. You hurt because they hurt because they hurt. You hurt. We all hurt. So if you want to talk honestly about that, then it, it makes sense to them. Same with this. We're not better people, Christians, as opposed to people who aren't. We just have better news. God can save you from all the things that you know are wrong about you. So that said, let's get to uh, something else we've said a couple of times moving through these passages. This is controversial stuff for some people. Uh, there have been times and places in history where what we just read would have been commonly believed by everyone. No pushback whatsoever. But you start talking about working in the home and submissive to husbands or having someone teach you how to love your children and your husband, you might have someone say, what in the world is wrong with you? No one needs help with any of that stuff. Well, this is not a disclaimer. We're sorry for what this book said when it was written 2,000 years ago. It's just a reality check. What we're studying here, most of the world would laugh at, if not say we're all absurd to believe. But rather than worrying about them, let's worry about the God that wrote the book. It doesn't change. It never will. Whether or not we change has nothing to do with its truth. And we do believe this is just the practice for the real game. The real game is the next life. We should pay attention at least to understand it. And then we should take a shot at obeying it because it's what God expects out of us. And what we'll do for the morning... I'd like to organize the, the contents we just read over a little differently than they're found in the passage. Um, if you noticed, of the three verses given over to the younger men and women, and last week we studied the older men and women, uh, there are two verses for the women, the young women, this morning, and only one verse, and it's a short one for the young men. doesn't mean that the young men have shorter attention spans, though they do. It doesn't mean that they can comprehend or understand less and unless they're not paying attention but even though i'm a firm advocate for the ladies first i'm going to switch them we'll look at the young men first and then the young ladies first and what we'll do is use a parallel passage an old testament passage that talks about some of the same things it's kind of a, a way to segue from one to the other you'll see how it all fits as as we move through it but uh, look at verse six Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. And that's it. It's just that short little sentence. 
The instructions for young men are brief but comprehensive. You can put practically everything under that self-controlled banner. And where Titus was to instruct the younger women, we learned this last week, indirectly through the older ladies. He has no business talking to younger ladies himself. Use the older ladies to teach the younger ladies. In this case, his age is his advantage in dealing directly with younger men. Uh, The word urge sometimes translates encourage in your translation of your Bible. It's an appeal to their sense of personal moral responsibility. The word likewise, again, carries all the responsibility of the previous instruction to the older men and the older ladies. So it's not like they're getting shortchanged here. It's just one thing in its self-control. No, all that other stuff, but say the self-control more than once. In fact, it's a third time at this point because that was told to the leadership as well. So if there's one thing you repeat with the younger men, it's self-control, self-control, self-control. They really need some self-control is what we're reading. Now, since young men are inclined to be somewhat impetuous and unrestrained in their conduct, that seems to be the best fit. Anyone with young men in their households want to disagree? No. So cultivating a balanced self-restraint is what's on order. And as such, Paul says, in effect, Titus helped the young men to learn how to apply the brakes in life. They know where the acceleration pedal is, but just to the left of that is a brake pedal. Show them where it is, show them how to use it, and then encourage them to use it often. Help them know how to curb their ambition, though there's nothing wrong with ambition. That's the way God created men to get things done, but it can take over everything if that's solely their focus while other things are left behind. Purge themselves from greed, that's, that's never good. Show them how to master their sexual urges and impulses. You'll need older men to help them understand that. How to follow their minds instead of their bodies. How to be gentlemen instead of jerks. Dependable rather than a disappointment. All of that could be, again, under the banner of self-control. Pace yourself. Teach them to be responsible stewards of their money rather than squanderers. It's at this point you start bringing into your head all the other stuff in the Bible about these things, like you know the prodigal son. Uh, show them the rewards of unselfish leadership and the foolishness of self-centered pursuits. The thing that young men have, or things rather, seems in spades, is strength and energy. And the idea is don't blow all of that on yourself because it won't last and others need it. So the parallel passage that I I want you to turn to, and when I say the address, you're going to think, uh, did you get enough sleep last night? But we're going to read the portion of it that's not as famous as the other portion. Turn to Psalm 31. Not Psalm, Proverbs, excuse me. Proverbs 31. You know, they made a a multi-marketed level thing with a lot of handbags and stuff off of this passage. But it's about the virtuous woman. But that's down in verse 10. If we started in verse 1... And if you're looking through your Bibles, there's Psalms, then Proverbs. And this is right up against the beginning of Ecclesiastes. It's the last chapter in Proverbs. This is a passage, and it explains it there in the first verse, written by a mother to her son. 
It says, the words of King Lemuel, and we're not exactly sure who that is, though a lot of people think it's Solomon, an oracle that his mother taught him. What did she teach him? Well, she starts out in verse 2. What are you doing, my son? As if uh, she doesn't know or she's scratching her head or she's mad at him. Or... And she doesn't say it once. Now, everybody who's had a, a mother, if she says it more than once, does that mean anything? What if she says it three times? What are you doing, son of my womb? What are you doing, son of my vows? That's three times to deepen the, the uh, emphasis here. And then she says in verse 3, do not give your strength, we just talked about that, to women. Now, she's talking to a young man who's in a position of power. He's a king. And the first thing she says not to do is to get mixed up with the wrong women. Now, if you need more on that, just turn to Proverbs 7. That's the bad woman. Stay away from her. Uh, All the good that you've got can be neutralized by that and worse. Uh, Think about Samson great way to think of it. Young man, the most naturally gifted man in the whole Bible with supernatural strength. And what was his problem? Self-control. He basically ruined it all. His death was horrible. He took out a bunch of Philistines in the end, but after a wasted life because he couldn't say no to his, his self. And that Philistine woman named what? Delilah. Nobody ever names their daughters Delilah. One radio lady used it for her whatever. She's still on the airwaves. I don't know. But uh, I've never met a little Delilah, right? (laughs) Maybe older Delilahs. But think about that. Don't give your... The thing that you've got that the world doesn't have if they're too old or too young, it's, it's an amazing gift God given you. Don't give it to women. Your ways to those who destroy kings, she's saying. Then in verse 4, she switches the subject. It's not for kings, O Lemuel. It's not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink. Now, we talked about that last week because it was with the leadership and it was with the older men and the older women. Watch out for the alcohol. We talked about how the Bible calls it a gift in one place and a mocker in another place. You need the discernment between the two massively. And here, she says there is one group that should never have it. The guy who's in charge of the whole country. And when there's a problem at 2 a.m., he needs to be able to answer the call and make the decision. She says you, you can't surrender your judgment to some inebriating substance. Uh, lest they drink and what? Forget what's been decreed and pervert the rights of the afflicted. Give strong drink to the one who's perishing. Wine to those who are in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget. That's why they drink anyway. It's to make you forget. You don't drink to get smarter. The drink responsibly thing? That really sounds dumb, doesn't it? If you're responsible... (laughs) As a king, you wouldn't do it to start with. We're depending on you, is what she's saying. So then in verse 8, open your mouth for the mute. Speak for those who can't speak for themselves. For the rights of all who are destitute, who don't have means like you do. They can't move and shake. Verse 9, open your mouth, judge righteously, defend with your strength and your energy the rights of the poor and the needy. So it sounds kind of like a mother reminding her son of the need for self-control, doesn't it? It's basically the same contents that Titus is being told to tell his church. 
But then what's next, I think, is telling. Because it's a description of a Christ-like woman said in the language of a valuable treasure to be sought after as the true wealth of life. Son, this is what you need because you can't do this alone. And behind every, what do they say, important man is an absolutely important woman. Uh, They might have that reversed. Behind every important woman is maybe a useful man. You know, we talked a lot about this last week, and there's a reason why Paul seems to have shifted the, the weight of his words in one direction. Verse 10, an excellent wife who can find. Where do you go for that? She's far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her. What's that worth? And he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. So here's what I want you to think about. You'll have to think with me and know that I'm in the younger man category, but not by far. So I'm going to have to depend and defer to the wisdom of the older men and the older ladies. But I think what's being said here is very possible that this young man's mother is suggesting that to strengthen his self-control, she's suggesting that he position himself to find the right woman to help him do it. He needs a governor. You know, like they put on go-karts so kids can't go as fast as the go-kart can go. A restrictor plate for the big tracks in NASCAR. Uh, The brakes. Somebody's got to help him learn how to pump the brakes. Now, this might be uh, this sermon's installment of Isaac Ruins Everything. I try to at least stick one in every few weeks or so. And when I say that, this is my two cents. We'll leave the Bible out of this for just a moment, and I'll quickly get back to it. But in my travels, and that's not far as 44 years of breathing and 25 years almost of full-time ministry and 16 years worth of a parent and 18 years worth of being married, I don't know of anything better suited to grow someone up into at least some measure of maturity than to get married early and have kids right after that. Now, send me the hate mail later. It's just my two cents. It's my opinion. Now, if the foundation's off, if they're not faithful Christians, if mom and dad didn't lay the foundation, if they don't ever come to church, then your mileage will vary and it'll be a wreck. But if everything's in place, obey the first thing God ever told the planet to do. Be fruitful and multiply. You'll have a dependent. The world won't revolve around you. You'll be working for others. And then you'll have your work cut out for them, making sure that they don't grow up thinking the world revolves around them. But dependency, when, when, you, when there's more riding on you than just what you want to do when you get up that morning, it tends to stand one up straight. And... I heard someone say it when I was younger, as far as marriage. It takes two. Now, is that the way most of the world works? No. There's relationships explode. There are single parents. There are widows and widowers. There's grace for all that, too. But it seems the way God designed it, for the most part, it takes two. So I think that's enough for the young men, at least for now. We'll come back to it every now and then as uh, rabbits run through my brain, maybe. 
But uh, before we go to back to verse 4, I'm going to summarize the rest of, say, verse 13 onward through Proverbs 31. This is what Lemuel's mother is describing as what her son should be looking for. This woman gets up early and goes to bed late. She has her own garden and prepares all her family's food. She has her own clothing business. She has real estate business. She's an agent. She works out. She's in great shape. She doesn't waste time. She takes care of the poor. Her kids get up in the morning and sing her praises. Lemuel, you go looking for Wonder Woman. Because that's basically the, the listing here. Why would she go paint a picture of almost impossible um, parameters? Sounds like it's the perfect woman. And we know that there's no such thing as a perfect woman or a perfect man. There was one perfect man. His name was Jesus, but he was Jesus. So what is this? It's a, it's a target. It's an example of a Christ-like woman. Something to aim for. Something to shoot for. Uh, so that God's children knows what it might look like. So when you've got that in your picture, in your mind, in the hopper there, now look at verse 4 of Titus, if you kept your finger there. And this is where we get to the stuff that the world has left behind. So train the young women, this is older women, to love their husbands and children. We talked about it last week. To be self-controlled, pure, Working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands. It doesn't say submissive to anybody else. That the word of God may not be reviled. Now, last time we took care of the question, okay, how old is an older man or an older woman? We said 50 because that's kind of Greek culture. Their life expectancy wasn't as long as ours, so maybe ours is more like 60. But the idea was being... Your children have grown up, they're out of the house. Maybe your children have had children, you're an older person. Well, for a younger person, it's not a child. You're capable of having children, and maybe you've got children around your feet, but they haven't left the house yet because you'd be getting closer to older man or woman. So that's kind of what we're talking about here. And this is what the older ladies are to teach the younger ladies to do. What was the list? Love their husbands and love their children. And we talked about how they'll need an older lady for that because nothing is said as to the church or pastors or elders or deacons or anybody being responsible for the education of the younger ladies. That's given to the older ladies. Um, And the task here, loving husbands and loving children, might not be as natural as it seems on the surface. And Facebook's made it worse because everything looks great on Facebook. Oh, I love my husband. I love my children. Well, what if that little microphone where everybody's listening to you with your cell phone, you don't know it, or those little dots, you know, that you can just address and they'll send stuff to your house? What if that malfunctioned and everybody could hear how much you love your husband and your children in your house? (laughs) Maybe just come get your husband and your children and say you're a harm to that lady. Um... It's not as natural as it seems. And things change after the wedding vows. It's especially bad for people who believe that, you know, it's like it is on TV. It's all about spontaneity and fireworks and explosions and all these things. It is, but not for long. About 24 to 36 months, the psychiatrists tell us, doctors and uh, scientists, and it's all because chemicals change in your brain. 
Their brain won't tell you that it happened either. It'll just leave you confused. But something's off. Something's changed. Love, as described in the scriptures, has nothing to do, very little to do with emotion. It has to do with commitment. It has to do with trust. Love has to do with submission mutually. It has to do with respect. It has to do with honor. And it has to do with an occasional firework. They don't go away. There's that little book, you know, on the other side of Ecclesiastes that no one wants to preach out of. Um, But again, love their husbands refers to willing, determined love that's not based on a husband's worthiness, but on God's command to love that man and a wife's affectionate and obedient heart to obey her God on her husband's behalf. That's the way this is set up. Um, I wrote this down. I don't remember who said it. I've got it in quotes here. Pour yourself into your husband until you've got so much of yourself invested it would be a waste not to love him. That's kind of like your heart is where your treasure is. You know, this would be like putting all your treasure into that husband so that your heart follows him and your heart winds up where the man is, even if it doesn't deserve any of that stuff, which men don't. Because love's wonderful. It, it, it's something we only understand if we understand the God who made the world in the first place and why we would deserve it of anyone. When I found out that my wife loved me, really loved me, after enough time for her to really know who I am, and she still loved me, that's when I decided I can't let her get away. I'll have to marry her before she knows better. <laughs> Because you don't get that kind of a deal, but maybe once in a lifetime, right? So if, if that's the husbands, what about the children? And a careful look into this passage might save us from the assumption that that's as natural as it seems. Loving your children isn't sitting in an auditorium gloating over your child's performance in a school play or spending gargantuan amounts of money on the latest equipment to give them an extra advantage in their sports or hobbies. That's not love. In fact, in the end, when we meet our maker, we might find out that was the epitome of child abuse, that we neglected to teach them anything about this book that lasts forever, and instead we just gave them a bunch of stuff that will rot when we're gone. That would be bad. One of them is very easy compared to the other one. Day in and day out, reminding them back to the book, that's hard work. Just spending money that we make in one hand and out the other, that's pretty easy. It's like eating the dessert the whole time. She goes on, this mother in Proverbs and Paul writing to Titus, self-control also goes for the younger ladies. It's the same as sensible, same quality that we saw in the lessons for the elders. Common sense, good judgment should improve with age, but they should be evident in early adulthood. And then purity here is the avoidance of everything that's impure. I don't think I need to really hammer on this type of thing. It's not hard to understand. People in Crete understood what purity was. People in Wake County understand what purity is. The people that make all the stuff that on TV that act like they don't have purity, they still know what it is. All of us know inside what purity is. And then working at home, that's probably the landmine that would uh, blow us into smithereens if, you know, this message was audited by, you know, the culture The devoted wife and mother finds her absorbing interests 
and the innumerable task of the home. These demand unsparing, self-giving, and may subject her to the temptation to be irritable and harsh in her demands on members of the household who aren't as busy as she is. But what is it saying by what it's saying? Because I've sat in pews and listened to people make this passage say a lot more than it says. And I've sat and listened to people say it means a lot less than it says. We're not given permission to do either of those. We have to let it say what it says. Don't add and don't take away. So I think the sphere of influence of a young woman with children is within the home. That, that's number one. doesn't mean she can't work outside the home. But there are little ones who hang on every word she says who are shaped and molded by her influence, whether it's spoken or just absorbed osmotically. I would dare say when we get to heaven and find out how everything really worked, that we are more our mothers than anything else. Because not only did she have a nine-month lead on everyone before the introduction, but then up to a certain age, she's pretty much the one that provides it all. The husband goes out and brings home the paycheck to finance the whole means. But it, it's, in some ways, an unfair advantage, if you want to call it that. But it's the way God designed it. Um, if she fails to make an impact in that sphere, she'll leave a huge gap that no one else can fill in the same way. Now, um, going back to... Proverbs 31 is a massive help here because people want to say, here he goes, you know, woman's place is in the home and in the kitchen and blah, blah, blah. Not the virtuous woman, the real estate agent, the clothing business, the, the providing all the food and planting it and harvesting it herself. She was an industrious person. But at the same time, who got up and called her blessed every morning? I guess sang hymns to him maybe. Any, any of y'all's children get up in the morning and sing you hymns? So uh, there's, there's some artistic language being used here. Sounds like a Facebook post, doesn't it? I was served breakfast in bed while my children sang me hymns. Um, but who could replace that person? Where there's jobs to do anything you want to do under the sun. But for certain kids, there's only... One influence that can do that like her and no one else can. I think that's what, when it says working at home, don't neglect the wide open door God gave you to, to bring up these living souls that he entrusted you as the original delegator. Here, I've made another living soul. You raise it. it it's a fantastic thought. Massive responsibility. But I think mom gets the lion's share of the privilege, at least while the children are young. So I came across this uh, following thing. I think we read it last time, if you remember five years ago. Sometimes it's hard to remember five minutes ago. But this you could call a mother's job description. This is made up, and uh, all of these end with the letters E-R, so the grammar's not right on all of them. But maybe it'll paint a picture in your head. This is a snapshot of what we're thinking about. A cleaner. 
can clean and straighten the whole house when someone calls and says they'll be over in five minutes. Don't check the closets, but you know they might burst open, but it can be done. A listener always has time to listen to overly descriptive child dramatics. It's just fun to watch. A driver to hear there and everywhere and back again to hear there and everywhere. Run the wheels right off that minivan, right? A fixer of bad dreams, broken toys, scuffed knees. A cooker. That's not good grammar. As in slaving over a fine meal that no one seems to like only to cook blue box macaroni the following night and hear that it was the best meal ever. Y'all have had that happen, huh? A replacer of towels, paper towels, toilet paper, light bulbs, Q-tips, fish food. A loser is in never winning a game against the little one. A negotiator when brother and sister have reached an ugly impasse. A killer, as in bugs. A saver, as in bugs. I guess there's some worth saving and some worth killing, depending on... Who's upset about it? An opener. Fruit cups, freezer pops, Capri Sun. Those are tough. I'd get my drill out. An answerer. Are we there yet? When is lunch? When is dinner? Can I have a snack? Can I have a drink? Can I play in the sprinkler? Can I have the scissors? Can I have a Sharpie? A sleeper. Nope, that's in the negative. She doesn't sleep. Uh, buyer, like the once in a while it's okay to put quarters in the machines at the end of the checkout counter. And don't enterprising businessmen know where to put those gumball machines. Um, translator, fluent in two-year-old gibberish. A hider of chocolate, that's a survival skill. A giver of joy, like dancing in the kitchen, singing in the car, throwing things off the deck, whatever you need to do. A teacher in a million and one different ways. A shopper because if dad went out to get the kids' clothes, it wouldn't work. An understanderer. I put two errs on the end of that. Understanderer because it's not always going to work out as planned. A finder of anything that's lost Legos, the back off an earring, the other shoe. A worker. That is, can make things work because sometimes they just have to. A reader of many books and knowing the voices to make four-year-olds lean in or to laugh. And finally, a cheerleader. Because a child will never find a better cheerleader than the one who believes in them and in their dreams. And the truth is, there may be no human being on the planet other than that mother who knows those dreams. In fact, those children were part of hers. So the question after reading that is, who are you going to give that job to? Who else can do it? And for my father, his grandmother did it. And she did it admirably. And there's a whole list of reasons why it worked out that way. But for someone to grow up correctly... The specialists tell us they at least need to know that at least one person's crazy about them. And I think mothers do that best. And they're going to need an older lady to help them get through it. Because all that what we just read, I read through it again. It could all happen in an afternoon. 
that long list within the space of a few hours. And why is all this important? So that the word of God is not reviled, so that opponents have nothing to say, and so that we each may adorn the gospel of Jesus. Why is this such an attractive means of of displaying the gospel? Because who wouldn't want a happy home? What would you pay for a happy home if yours is a war zone? Who would you say is crazy if their home is happy? It's a little piece of heaven on this earth before we get to the real one. And we've been given the formula how to make it work. So we thank the Lord for Titus and we thank the Lord for Proverbs. And we'll pick up where we left off last time. Now... Today is Communion Sunday. You may have noticed by our communion set up here, and this is where we'll usually transition over to doing that. The sermon is now complete, and we will sing a song to conclude today, but we'll observe communion before we begin. Now, usually there's a few things that I'll say, preliminaries, before we do. Uh, One is that as far as Wake Chapel is concerned, this is not limited to only our membership. It's not closed communion. It would be close communion where if you say you're saved and you know it, we welcome you, invite you, and hope that you'll participate with us in communion. Also, uh, as far as children go, No one knows the heart of a child better than mom and dad. They know if they understand this and then are ready for it. And I think understanding is certainly before uh, they should do this. It wouldn't make much sense to do this if they don't understand it. And then for anywhere, this is all new to them. Maybe this is the first time you've ever sat in a church service. You don't know what this is, and that's not your fault. Um, It's probably better to just let the plates pass. And there would be time to understand it, know what it means, and then it means something when you do that. And we usually begin with a little season of prayer just to get our head and our heart in the right place. The piano will play. We'll have a few minutes just to ask the Lord to bring to your knowledge anything that would make trying to do something He asked us to do uh, a little dicey because there's things that we've done that he's asked us not to do and it would get in the way. So bring that to our mind. We confess it and ask forgiveness. Now this is one of two ordinances in the scriptures. The first is baptism. When a person's saved, it's kind of like a wedding ring. Behind that curtain's our baptistry and we'll dunk them all the way under the water and bring them back and it's a way to tell the rest of the world in this church who saw it that uh, I belong to Jesus. Same as a wedding band means I belong to my wife, Miss Corey, as the kids around here call her. Well, with communion, in the upper room, the night Jesus was betrayed, when he had his disciples with him, they're doing Passover, but he changes it up. And he says, this cup, which is grape juice, uh, it was likely almost certainly wine, but this represents my blood which I will shed for you for the remission of sins. And then this is my body, this little piece of bread, which they would break. My body is broken for you. Um, It's a reminder. He said, this do in remembrance of me. 
So you never forget what it costs to have that happy home we've just talked about. You're not fit for a happy home. In fact, you're prone to lie and to steal and to cheat and be selfish. You don't have to teach a kid how to do any of that stuff. They come standard equipped to be little liars, little cheaters. <laughs> we know that. Just have two or three of them and just watch. And by the time we get middle-aged, we really understand we're terminal this way. We need help to be even good. And it required a cross and sinless perfection. And Jesus dying and say, here's the deal. I'll take your sins and pay for them. I'll give you my goodness and righteousness and perfection. And when my father looks down, he'll see me instead of you. And you get to go to heaven in my place. I'll go to hell in your place. Thank the Lord it wasn't eternal for him. He survived it. And when we die, we survive it too. That whole business was hammered out at the cross. And Jesus told us to do this in remembrance. So every so often, here it's quarterly, we'll eat a little piece of bread and we'll drink a little piece of grape juice and remember it the way he said to. So let me pray and get us started. I'll come back and close that prayer. And when I do that, I'll call our, our deacons up. We'll distribute these elements and we'll do as the Lord commanded. So, uh, Father in heaven, we thank you for what we're about to do. And Lord, we ask uh, that you bring to our mind any business that we need to, to handle with you, our creator and our savior. Lord, we just want to do this the right way. And we want it to mean what you meant for it to mean. And we want that to trickle down even unconsciously to the way we operate in our own homes where no one but our family can see. So that everyone else around the world who doesn't know your name could look at us and say, whatever it is, it looks lovely. Lord, we'll need your help for that. So we ask over the next couple of minutes you... You speak to us and we listen. And we ask all this in your name.